Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever, drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now let's get to the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puppy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And on Fresh of the Word, we like to deliver wisdom through great stories from the minds of bright creatives of pop culture. Through those stories, we like to dissect the journey of our guests and present actionable lessons and advice for our listeners, no matter what career or avenue of artistry they pursue. And before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Foulmouth for the theme music for Fresh of the Word. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can always go to freshofthepodcast.com and just share any of the links for any of the episodes on any of your social media platforms. And also, you can subscribe to Fresh of the Word pretty much anywhere that podcasts are streamed. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, pretty much everywhere. And please, rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It would definitely help out the show. If you want to contact me, you can always reach me by email at djkfresh at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at kfresh is the word and on facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh and you can also follow fresh is the word on twitter at fresh is the word and that's is with iz instagram at fresh is the word podcast and facebook at facebook.com slash fresh is the podcast and this is episode 143 our guest this episode is queer black comic book writer and editor danny lore raised in harlem but now bronx based danny lore has worked in comic and gaming shops since the beginning of time. They have been an editor for comic book titles such as 
The Good Fight, and The Wilds, as well as an acquiring editor for Fire Magazine. Their first creator-owned comic series, Queen of Bad Dreams, will be published by Vault Comics starting this week. During our chat, we talked about Queen of Bad Dreams, the comic book creator community being an ally to marginalized communities, their upbringing in Harlem, blackness, gentrification, working on the wilds with Vita Ayala, having authenticity and proper voices for characters in comics, and even some wrestling. Now we'll get into my interview with Danny Lore after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey guys, we're Chuck and Brad. We're two comedians who do the Chuck and Brad podcast, a pop culture podcast based out of Rhode Island. We just wanted to let you know that we're going on a short comedy tour called Chuck and Brad Reimagine the Avengers. It's our own comedic retelling of the original Avengers movie, and we're touring the shows the same weekend that Avengers Endgame comes out. So come get a refresher and a new spin on the original Avengers movie before you go see Endgame. Thursday, April 25th, we'll be in Hartford, Connecticut at the CT Comedy Theater with B.J. Quagan, Andrew Morgan, and Stosh Makita. Saturday, April 27th, we'll be in New York City at the Pit Loft with Impractical Jokers tour opener Jiggy, Impractical Jokers writer Casey Jost, and UCB veteran Lisa Kleinman. Sunday, April 28th, we'll be at Laugh Boston with John Tilson, Logan O'Brien, Tyler Swain, and Dan Hall. All event info and tickets at chuckandbradpodcast.com. Every night we'll have the comics open up the show and we'll close with our live retelling of The Avengers. And for a tiny bit of background, we've done the podcast for 10 years. We've had on great guests like Jeff Tremaine, the director of the Jackass movies, the bands Bowling for Soup, Less Than Jake, Real Big Fish, Big D and the Kids Table, and many, many more. And if you're a big podcast listener, you might know me from uh, Tell Em Steve Dave. I work on film projects for the podcast Tell Em Steve Dave, which is made up of uh, Walton Bryant from AMC's Comic Book Men and Quinn from True TV's Impractical Jokers. I consistently do the film work for the Tell Em Steve Dave Patreon. So come on out, support this very weird live comedy show, and hopefully more and more podcasts will start doing their own live alternative shows. Once again, that's Chuck and Brad Reimagine the Avengers, New York City, Hartford, and Boston. See you at the end of the month. ChuckandBradPodcast.com. You got a, a new uh, book coming out uh, in April, Queen of Bad Dreams. Talk about that. Uh, so Queen of Bad Dreams, uh, I kind of like taking it as a, a kind of a fusion of things like, you know, Sandman or Paprika meets Blade Runner. Uh, it's essentially a world in which figments, uh, both items and peoples and, and creatures from our dreams can um, spill out into the real world. And uh, the adventure starts when um, one um, inspector judge uh, is tasked with investigating a a figment uh, who is uh, desperate to run from their dreamer. Where did the idea no of this uh, book uh, come from? Uh, so... It's kind of got a few places. It, it definitely started uh, the concept as like a short story concept, but it's really, uh, in general, a response to the kind of the concept of uh, the manic pixie dream girl and taking it very, very literally. Um, the idea of um, the woman that the perspective that we see of her um, and that we're told of is is very much this pretend dreamed up uh, experience uh, usually from um, a guy and then just uh, from there playing with what if that was a literal thing? What if that woman uh, fi uh, 
was actually what was described, but because she is th this element of a dream and then taking her out of the dream and when she gets to see herself and the world around her and the decisions and suddenly is like faced with um, the decisions and experiences of being in the real world, uh, kind of what happens. And then I added chases to it and action because that's fun. <laughs> we always like chases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in like in society, you know, there's always these sort of ideas that people want out of women. And it, a lot of times they're very, you know, unrealistic. But if they happen to come true in anyone, it's like almost like men don't want that when they get it. You know, it's a little bit too much for them, what they think they want. How are you sort of tackling the like the real world sort of significance of all that in this book? Um. I think that, all right, so I grew up very heavily on, um, for example, you know, Buffy and... My favorite show of uh, all time. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> lots of shows like that. I still, they're still uh, very close to my heart. I still owe a lot of uh, my creative process to having, like, experienced them as they were on and things like that. Um, and one of the... And not just from Whedon, but uh, that's kind of like the strongest example yeah. of um, this kind of trope of the strong, the strong woman, woman accept that. Um, so, you know, you get in Buffy, you get a lot of very, very strong women who are written into situations where they are not the people in charge or um they're strong physically or they're strong with power, but you notice that like they don't tend to be allowed to be actually leading or when they start leading that they're, that they somehow always happen to be wrong. Um, and that's something that I think is used again, not just in Buffy, but in a lot of other uh, instances. Um, and I also think that the extended media doesn't do this nearly as much as like the show it did itself. But um you get these characters that it goes, okay, but what if they didn't act, what if they were actually afforded agency? You know, you have characters who are really cool and badass, and then it's like, no, but you're, we don't have to hand wave them in some way that diminishes their power. Uh, and kind of the way that I, I do that in queen um is in a very limited way it's via community um yes ava is dropped into this world where into the waking world and doesn't actually know her way around necessarily but dahir does um viv dahir's ex-wife does um you've got uh west and they they definitely you know like understand kind of how the world is structured um and surrounding them with people surrounding someone like Ava with people who can support them figuring out what their dreams are was really important as a way to tackle that um that people who go no you deserve to have this place in the world um, and 
than by that, that kind of community support um, actually giving them that kind of power regardless of, you know, whether or not her dreamer finds that acceptable. When you're, when you're tackling a story like this or just even anything that you've working on or even stuff that you're consuming, whether it is TV shows, movies, comic books, you know, how important is it to sort of, how, how important should it be, at, what I should say, in this day and age to continue to have those discussions about how, like, like a woman's place in regards to what their power is and what sort of actions they are able to accomplish without having always that sort of man there to be a, you know, be somebody in charge or be be able to accomplish things because of like a man you know do you feel like there's any sort of discussion that needs to still be uh be done in regards to that uh absolutely uh my kind of feeling is that it's very much as long it's that age old as long as people are asking that question we clearly still need to have that conversation um like in a very strong way you know i love consuming media. I love comics and video games and all of this stuff. But, you know, you still see conversations every day um, where women are both written out of and written around in terms of their accomplishments. Like we're seeing that with the discussion of um, the photographs of uh, the black hole that were discovered. Uh, You're seeing that when you look at uh, the history of, you know, the male director who, with the female editor who, you know, it took years after the movies for, you know, their contribution to really be seen and noticed. Um, I think that it's, especially as someone who's creating, those conversations are incredibly important um, not just about cis women, but about non-binary uh, people and about uh, trans people. Because if we stop having those conversations, the work stops getting done. And if the work stops getting done, then we are not keeping those topics in the minds of our readers and the next generation of creators. In keeping with those discussions, you know, when you're talking about those sort of marginalized groups, you know, whether it is non-binary people, um, trans people, you know, whether it's different races, you know, what do you feel like is the definition of an ally? What can like an ally of another um, an, uh, another group, even if it is you know, your regular white guy, you know, what's, you know, your definition of what an ally is? Um, this almost feels like a cheat answer, but I, I really genuinely feel that allyship is situational. Um, and part of the most important part of being an ally is being able to evaluate what's necessary from you in in specific situations to bring people 
you know, to bring marginalized people uh, up and support them. Um, sometimes this means uh, speaking up in defense. Sometimes this means shutting your mouth. Sometimes this means, you know, uh, writing more diverse groups. And other times it's it's going, I am not the person to write this um, or to speak for these people. Um, and sometimes it's knowing your limits. You know, sometimes it's just going... Sometimes the best thing an ally can do just can just go, I don't have the range for this. <laughs> and, no, exactly. you know, kind of be like, you know, let me start my own research or let me sit back and listen to you. Um, and I think that kind of that situational awareness is such a core part of allyship and is so much more important than I think some people realize um, and this just kind of comes out of people tend to define allyship by the first time that they were in a situation where they were an ally and they felt like they were useful, you know? So if the first time it was because you stepped back and said, oh, you know, this isn't for me, you know, it it's very easy to go, that's what being an ally is. Um, but there might come another situation where you're like, oh, no, like, they're not listening when, you know, these brown people are talking. Like, is there some way that I can help? Yeah. How do you feel like the, the idea of allyship works itself into such a collaborative uh, industry as the comic book industry? Oh, um, I think in a lot of ways, like, being... I guess the closest comparison to me is when, you know, like you see like writers and colorists and letters and artists like supporting each other. Like there's a lot of the awareness of when you need to take center stage and when you need to, you know, back off and cheer people on that I think is very similar to uh, being an ally for uh, other marginalized people. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, um, especially when you look at the, the indie scene in particular, that there are so many marginalized people uh, who are marginalized on so many different axes um, that it is easy to find yourself in a situation where you should be being an ally to someone uh, in your community, um, some group of people, you know, like most of us do not cross, you know, virtually every you know, sort of uh, intersection of marginalization that uh, is possible. So you, you frequently find, you know, in support of, especially now with uh, so many people attempting to, you know, harass and torment a lot of uh, creators yeah. uh, that make that within the comics community, a lot of times you find yourself making the choice whether or not to be an ally right now. You know, when you have that sort of, when you have that, that community of, of comic book creators that is, you know, tormenting certain other creators for whatever reason, whether it is, you know, whatever, you know, the race or sexuality or whatever, you know, how, you know, how do you go about sort of getting past all of that? How do you fight back against all that? 
Uh, I'm really good at spite writing. (laughs) (laughs) I know you are. (laughs) I follow Uh, you on Twitter. Of um, the pieces that I've written or worked on that I'm most proud of uh, were a way for me to process a particular sort of uh, anger or frustration in the world. Um, So some of it is riding the wave. Uh, Some of it is surrounding yourself with really supportive people. Um, I've been really fortunate, you know, um, you know, like my best friend is Vida Ayala. And if they for a second hear me, you know, like kind of succumbing to the sludge of the world, like they are the first to be like, I'm going to fight it. (laughs) Um, right. And I think that your community is so important because there's a lot of people who want to drown out a lot of voices. And if you find that, you know, even if it's just one, two, three people whose voices you really love and respect, who can like turn to you and go like, those people are full of shit. You've got something to say. I think that's really important. Yeah. That's something I've really noticed in the past year or so since I've uh, really you know, dug deep into uh, the comic book world, started going to uh, conventions and whatnot and meeting more people is that this, the community is, is so great. Um, there's, there's, there is definitely a support system that exists there and everybody has been so just nice to talk to and to learn from. And I think that is very important. It's, it's something I come from more of a, um, from like the hip hop scene, music scene mm-hmm. sort of thing. And the, the community that I see in, in the comic books, like is so different than what I, what I experienced in music. And it's very like, it's very like, it's, it's refreshing actually. Those people that know how to, uh, you have a community, um, out of just sheer positivity. Yeah. I think, No, I don't know too much about, like, the actual, like, community for hip-hop aside from, like, my friends and family. Um, (laughs) But, like, in general, in general for me, I think what it is about comics is, especially if you go to conventions, the people you see more than once or twice, like, the people who stay in, they're definitely not doing it for money. They're doing it because they, like, they don't, like, most people in comics they 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 know at the end of the day that the stress and joy are going to be about equal if not the stress being really higher a lot of the time <laughs> right. uh and so they're they're there there's they're like in the artist alley you're hoping to sell enough that you at least break even or make money hopefully right right but the reason that you chose your avenue being artist alley and comics is because you love being in a room with comics. (laughs) You love sitting there, opening the pages, talking craft, talking story, you know, nerding out over, you know, like over new comic book day. (laughs) And so the majority of the community just wants to find other people who love it like they do, you know, and sometimes that can be a negative thing because Sometimes people love negativity, and so there's always going to be in any community people who group up because they love the negativity of it. But in general, when you have a community like that, 
it's going to be a community that goes like, yeah, I feel you. Like, let's support each other. Let's, let's be there. And even if we're not working together, let's, we understand that just the sheer friendship and support can make really great stories. And we all benefit from other people being supported. Do you feel like in that, in that community of people that you see regularly um, in artist alley at the conventions, do you feel like they have a, a good foundation to almost like police themselves, police the community. If you do have that bad seed, that is, you know, whether they're being just an asshole or, you know, doing something bad, you know, you know, being racist or being, you know, sexual assault, whatever, you know, do you feel like that, that, that sort of community has a, is, has a good foundation of police in itself? I think that that is a mixed bag and I'm going to be very careful saying this because I definitely think that like 99% of the people that you encounter are like good or trying to be good people. I think that what happens whenever you're in a, in a small community that of a lot of people who are creatives. And so they're especially sensitive that you get, that there are people who are scared to speak up. Yeah. Um, and some of that is because of power dynamics. And some of that is just out of sheer speaking up is always going to be a terrifying thing. Um, I think that every, almost every day, it feels like we're making leaps and bounds in being able to hold bad actors in the community accountable. And I love that. Um, and I love that even when it's a struggle to do it publicly, that everyone that I know, thankfully, has attempted to support each other, you know, be it by, oh, I can't say anything because it's not my story to tell, but I'm going to stand next to you and make sure to stare down, you know, X bad actor or just, you know, you know, give you whatever warnings that people are able to, you know what I mean? Kind of going back a little ways, you know, when did you first sort of get, you know, the bug to, you know, really like comic books, you know, what was it about comic books that really like piqued your interest? I went through phases with it. So the first comic I ever read books of magic, that old vertigo series, um, back when I was like a kid, like, be, like, and I mean, like, I found it in the children's section of like the public library where it definitely should not have been. And I read every volume like that they had. And it was hysterical because back then, like all the old, all the, all the old vertigo volumes have like no numbers. So I was just kind of like piecing it together and like reading them <laughs> out of order and then having to go back and realize, Oh, these happened in an order. Um, but like that, that book, I always, I mean, and anyone who's read books of magic knows why I say these specific words, but like that book for me was always my Harry Potter. It was that. And then it was the YA kids books. Um, the, so you want to be a wizard series, but very deeply like the weirdness of books of magic. Um, and, and just seeing that visualized and like those covers, like were just all absolutely astounding too. Like I definitely, that was one of those books I picked up because those covers drew you in. Um, and 
I went a long time not reading comics much after that, uh, simply because my access to collections was ve was very, very minimal at that point. You know, um, and uh, my, my mom in particular was just like, you finish comic books too quickly when you read them, so I'm not going to pick them up because, like, it's a waste of my time. So, like, <laughs> I didn't start really, like... I remember, like, you know, just moments, like, a uh, school trip to England with uh, in high school, and I remember I didn't pick up any souvenirs except I went to a comic shop and I bought, like, a, just a crap ton of uh, The Ultimate X-Men. <laughs> um, you know, because that was, oh, I have money and no one's stopping me, and I could do this, you know? Um... And then I remember, and then back in, then in college, um, I had a couple of friends who were very much into comics and, uh, then being very close to, uh, uh, Roger's Time Machine, uh, which is like, I think it's Mysterious Island now and, uh, Forbidden Planet and having access to books. So like I would go to Roger's and in there I could just go, Hey, I've never read Green... Green Lantern. I want to spend my next three weeks just reading good Green Lantern. And they would just load me up with books and I could go, you recommended this to me last week. And I just did that. And then I would go into Forbidden Planet. And there I was able to grab, like, I went back into Vertigo. It was when I, uh, even though like Constantine like showed up in Books of Magic, that's like when I really discovered him. Uh, and he remains to this day, like my all time favorite character. And just, the weirdness that you can get away with in comics because you have this combination of of word and art and this you know just the bizarreness that you could get i remember like picking up like parallax stuff for like green lantern and at the same time reading like dangerous habits uh in the hellblazer run and just mm -hmm. i'd never read anything like that stuff before you know, and it was so cool, you know, um, and I could just sit there for hours and just get piles of comics. Like I remember at that, I, sh I had at that point shut up my mom by, um, <laughs> getting like, I think it was like the first appearance of Gambit. It's that one where like Storm was like a little kid in it. And I got, it wasn't even that expensive. It was like 20 bucks, but like, I told her that it was worth more than like what the cover price was. And so she let me start getting comics because she was like, okay, maybe they'll be worth money. And I knew damn well, none of them were going to be worth money because <laughs> I wasn't collecting and I tear through books. Like I believe strongly if you love a book and you dog ear it, like you really love that book. But like, right. Um, you know, it, it was just, seeing what can be done in genre in graphics was was just mind-blowing to me and it always it has always gone back to vertigo for me like just timothy hunter and the you know, the trench coat brigade you know like i didn't even know that that was in until like years later and realizing that these characters that like hellblazer that i had become obsessed with and go, then went oh he was in the first comic i ever read you know <laughs> Like I said before, you know, I big hip hop guy and I love hearing about, uh, you know, stuff from New York. And I see that you were raised in Harlem, you know, what kind of a childhood did you have? You know, what was uh, what was Harlem like growing up? 
uh, I have very strong feelings about this. Uh, so I grew up uh, literally, you, you know, Jay-Z's that McDonald's. Yeah. That's across the street from where I live. Okay. Uh, so like I was in that neighborhood, like Manhattanville, Grant Projects, like that's that's where I grew up. Um, and I fiercely love and am very protective of that uh, that neighborhood. Um, I had a really kind of interesting experience because I never actually went to school in my neighborhood. Um, I had siblings who got into like a school on like the Upper West Side, like when I was younger. So I kind of legacy got into that school. Okay. Um, and then um, I was a scholarship student on the Upper East Side and there was such a dramatic difference between like my school life and like my home life. And I felt so much safer in my home life, you know? And what was wild to me was that people thought that that was weird. Right. Um, you know, like I could walk almost the whole length of 125th street and probably run into somebody. Cause my, 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 my mom lived in those projects like a little bit, but like my dad's family grew up there, you know, um, my dad's family was the kind of family that like everybody like knew them. Like to this day, I still run into people who I can't tell from Adam who are like, <laughs> yeah, I grew up with your uncle, you know, like, or nah, that's Stanley's kid, you know, like, you know, right, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was very much that community and it's, it still is. Um, it's weirdly heartbreaking to see cause it's like my, my part of the neighborhood in particular is like in the midst of some like heavy gentrification right now. So it's like this weird experience where the projects I grew up on and the bod and the bodega that's been there for like half my life is still there, but across the, but I grew up being able to see the river from my uh, window. And now there's a giant Columbia building there. <laughs> and like, that's only in the past few years. And right. It's, it's difficult to to explain to people why that that's why that's painful, you know, um, and how much that's changed the neighborhood. You know, like I've experienced, you know, all like growing up like late eighties through the nineties to the early two thousands is the amount of change that's happened on one twenty fifth Street. You know, like there's so much of that. And like one of, one of my continuing goals, um, that I haven't really touched upon in queen, but I hope to, in my later work is I really want to immortalize that particular version of Harlem. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, to talk about, you know, like, cause to talk about the, the neighborhood and the bodegas that I grew up with, the, the buildings, the sites, the people, um, you know, prior to all of this other stuff growing in, you know, like it's weird to be, to be talking about this, but like for context, it's only been a couple of years that we've had like on 125th, uh, a Starbucks on the West side. And I mean like a couple, like, on, like up in that neighborhood. Like, I think it's been like two, three years, right. maybe a little more than that. Cause I'm terrible with time, <laughs> but like, it's like that kind of change is happening to the neighborhood. And 
I miss the neighborhood that I was running around and getting ICs and not realizing that any trouble was going on. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, certain things are going like going on in here in Detroit the same way uh, with our downtown, but still hasn't really spread to the outlying areas of within Detroit. But when you when you said that, like, you know, even with that progress, with that gentrification, people thought, you know, it's weird that you, you know, are kind of disheartened by it. I understand that because even even if a city is a bit rough and there's, you know, bad things going on, it's still, you know, from the outside, it's still deeper than that. There's still there's some, still love there. There's still love there. And the fact that you are, you know, you, you feel that that's going away. That's a, that's that's true feelings about it. And th- there is there is something that goes away when things get bought up and, you know, beautified and stuff that way when when it's not coming it's not from... for the people who's there like right it's it's that conversation that's very much the difference between gentrification and improvement right and like there there has not been a point in my life for my neighborhood in harlem where there have not been signs up or protests or public talks because everyone who has grown up in that neighborhood is trying to save their homes and trying not to get kicked out for new for like business or the university or something. I I've never experienced a world where that wasn't true. I experienced a time period where it didn't affect me that much because I was younger because you know like they hadn't made like the headway that they've made. But you feel the difference. The difference it they it's not about improving the community for the people who live there. It's about pushing them out. And I, I heard this about Detroit once from somebody who, who um, lived in Detroit all their lives. I just it was a tweet one time I saw, and I feel like it um it it could possibly reign true to any any sort of city. You know, you have these cities where there is um, poverty, there is there is crime, but people within those communities can easily say that these communities can be the safest place in the world if you just mind your business. And I feel like a lot of times people are just not minding their business and that's how they get into trouble. I mean, that's, that was definitely what it always was for me. Um, I know, again, I, I was in one of those specific situations that like my dad's family was pretty well known around the block. Uh, so people kind of let me do me, but it was also just very, I was aware of the negative things that happened, but also, but also it affected me a lot differently than the negative stuff that was happening outside and even the stuff that happened inside the neighborhood was very much still affected by like the treatment of marginalized people you know right um i ended up especially in high school i ended up in a in a pretty bad place emotionally and it was literally i would rather like everything that everyone around me was talking about places i was from and 
the people that they thought I was around as if it was this very negative thing. And I just remember constantly feeling like none of them have hurt me the way that that the uh, these super oppressive anti-marginalized spaces have you know right that 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 you guys can talk shit but that community was always there for me right and right. still is there to there for me in a very big way and you've, you've already kind of touched on it um a little bit but how do you feel like your upbringing has you know affected the things that you write it was kind of a revelation a couple of years ago when uh, I was first starting to write short fiction and looking for a market for it. I had realized that a lot of my private writing that I wasn't sending out or I wasn't sharing, uh, I had very blatant, or even stuff that I'd been sharing goofily with friends online, I had for a very long time heavily whitewashed it, that I had kind of written for the people who weren't going to rock with what I really had to say anyway <laughs> right? for a very long time. And then at some point it just hit me that I didn't have to do that anymore. Um, that I could, that I could write for my family and my community and focus on them being proud and them feeling what I was saying and what I, and, you know, digging it and understanding it. Um, and that heavily affected me. Um, I've got a couple of projects that, um, you know, short story, prose, et cetera, that I'm, I'm working on and that the main location is the place that, uh, I grew up mostly in Harlem, but, uh, when my folks split, my dad moved up to Hunts Point, uh, back when I was in, uh, middle school. So like just Harlem and the Bronx. And I try to make as much of my work if it takes place if it takes place in the real world it probably takes place in harlem or the bronx um because that's where i'm coming from um and you know um there's a lot of amazing creators doing great work from there um you know or even from you know the brown areas of brooklyn you know like i dream of one day writing something that people talk of the way that I feel when I read Shadow Shaper by Dana Jose Older. Um, I'm just like, I'm from the projects, you know, and that is deeply part of who I am. And I'm not going to let that be washed out of what, of what I'm doing anymore. Why do you feel like in the beginning you were sort of whitewashing your stories? I went to a very, very white high school. <laughs> um, yeah. And and this is no respect, disrespect to literary fiction because I actually hold it in, in high regard. And I think that there are a lot of great marginalized writers doing amazing work in literary fiction. But there is a specific kind of voice that within very white groups, um, especially when um, at the time they were, they, you know, like when, when you are in a general fiction group and the first thing the teacher tells you is, yeah, we're not doing genre because I don't know how to critique that. And then you're like, well, I guess I'm asked out because um, that's all I do. Um, and so it became very much writing to a, 
I just kept writing to get approval from these groups, you know, like there would always be some project where it's like, okay, now you write whatever you write. And I write genre. And then people would be kind of silent and awkward because they didn't know how to deal with it. Either it was too horror or too weird and different. Um, and so I became very good at being, well, I know that this is something people are going to like. Um, so let me write like that. Um, and then I come from like a very fandom heavy background as well. But um, I made the mistake for a few years of in rather than finding an audience that liked what I wrote writing for an audience. Um, and I think that this can happen in original fiction too, um, where you're like, I know that I can, I can affect this voice that will get me instant praise and that'll be easy. Um, I can mimic the twists and turns or the tropes that I'm supposed to. And I did that for many years. Um, and in a lot of ways, my writing suffered for it. Um, I think that there's a very strong reason why I wasn't publishing short stories then. And then the second that I went, screw it, I'm going to be really blatant and have the voice of my character, of my main character for my first short story be very black and very political. That's the reason, like, that that story got bought somewhere versus my earlier work. Right, yeah, there's a sort of a, there's an authenticity to it that I guess could show when you just start using the voice that you are to, mm -hmm. you know, create your work. You know, when it comes to representation and the, the proper voice for, for characters, you know, where do you see, you know, the comic book world at right now in regards to that? Do you feel like it's getting better? Um, do you feel like there's the, um, more and more creators that have a variety of voice being placed in the correct, you know, positions? Oh, absolutely. It's comics right now are super exciting for me. Um, I mean, part of it admittedly, uh, is that there have always been a lot of indie writers doing and like artists doing the sort of work that we talk about wanting to find, uh, but access to them or knowing how to get to them has always been difficult. But obviously with increase in social media, we have increased, increased access to that work. But then also I think that because uh, larger companies are able to see that indie work and see the audience for that indie work more, that they are every day becoming more and more opened to, um, to seeing what they do on a grander stage. And not everyone wants that grander stage, but I think that we're seeing a lot of really cool work um, by, by creators who are like really knocking it out of the park. I mean, I'm super biased, so, you know, I'm gonna talk, you know, submerged again. Um, you know, a few years ago, I genuinely feel like if Vita was pitching submerged, that they're definitely create uh, like there would have been editors and publishers being being like does this have to be as brown as it is does she have to be as queer as she is but we are now at a place where publishers are understanding that though that those are the voices that people want to see right you right. know um 
Yeah, I was just about to bring up a submerge with you because I can talk about submerge all day. Uh, we can just make that a whole <laughs> thing. Right. Or it's submerged and Abbott are like my two favorite things. Oh, and of Abbott. Me. Yes. Yes. Loved Abbott also. And when with um submerged, when I had Vita on, on the podcast, I told her, I'm like, what I love the most about this comic book was your use of authentic slang colloquialisms in it. She knocked it out of the park. I was like, when I was reading it, I'm like, yes, this is what I want in comic books. I want real talk, you know, real dialogue that people do use. And she knocked it out of the park with that. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love I jokingly, not jokingly, I'm entirely serious. I constantly tell uh, my other like writing friends that all I want is to be the writer that makes bet and deadass more common in comic books. Yes. Yes. Like, yes. I just want, <laughs> I just want superheroes talking about the weather and someone saying brick. I really, <laughs> I really want, I want to describe Colossus as brolic and I want that to be a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, <laughs> like, because that's, that's how I sound when I'm talking about them. Right, you know, right. like, you know, like I, I want superheroes and villains doing dumb shit, and someone stares at them and goes, "A word," like just to sound like they're readers. You know, like because so while like because of you know like opinions about like reading level and nonsense growing up, I didn't read that many comic com comics between like books of magic and then like late high school but like my dad and all of his friends grew up with superheroes you know like i remember getting stories of them playing pretend and playing you know pretend fighting over who gets to be iron man or doctor strange and people forget that this is that was a heavy comics crew you know that you know how much of hip-hop and you know, other brown communities are so tied into comics, you know? Yeah. Who, like, are so tied into superheroes and non-superhero comics, honestly. Like, and... I... I love that... these voices who... there are so many, like, nonsense people who claim that these fans, these people don't exist... And now comics are being written by the people who've been raised by the people that everyone said didn't exist. Right, right. And so their voices are on the page, and that's so cool and so fun. And, you know, like, submerged also, like, Vita and I were, like, so during during that hurricane, like, Vita and I were super close. Like, there was a point in time where, like, um... I don't know if Vita has ever told you this, but during the hurricane, like Vita literally walked from Alphabet City all the way up to Harlem because there was like no water. But like right. uptown, we had like water and electricity. Was there Hurricane Irene? Uh, that was. Um, wow. Which that one was a uh, hurricane. Um, sorry. <laughs> I just blanked because I've it's Hurricane Sandy. I don't know why Hurricane I because I was like. Hurricane Susan? No, I've just been talking to like three different Susans today. See, this um, is the, this is the thing that I told Vita about it because I was I was actually on vacation in New York when mm -hmm. um, Hurricane Irene hit, 
mm-hmm. and right at the end of my vacation, and I got, actually got stuck in New York. Um, I was staying in Brooklyn with my friend for for the hurricane because they canceled all the flights back home. Mm-hmm. And when I read, when I first started reading Submerge, just the mood and the look of that comic book reminded me of being being around for that hurricane in New York. Yeah, and it's it's weird because I definitely feel like I'm sure that there is a fictional work being done about Sandy, but like, and if anyone has any recommendations on fictional work being done around Hurricane Sandy, please recommend it to me. But it's it was something that like this was a tragic event that like for me nothing that I was reading reflected that. You know, um, and it's it's so weird to me, and it's so amazing to like read it like fully collected now. When like V like literally took that whole like many hour walk up to my apartment to like take a shower during that, so that we could like sit and you know like you know like just exist <laughs> uh, in the city at that time. You know, like wondering you know whether. Um, our, you know, our job at the time was going to, you know, win or it was going to open or how much damage had been done, you know, like, and so like, as a reader, it's a very personal story for me because I, it's the first one that I ever got to read and go, I, I felt this, I get it. Anyway, I could do an entire podcast <laughs> about how much I love Vita's work. So ha Vita, I managed to make this about you. Right, right, right. <laughs> she'll she'll like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and also you mentioned Abbott, and that's uh, set here in Detroit. And I love that because it it was uh, it was so on point with you know the the buildings that they used were were real things here in Detroit. There was so it's much such about a beautiful it. book. Oh my god, and it's, it looks beautiful. It's written. Beautifully, uh, Saladin Ahmed just like killed it on there. I was just like, oh man, like it. That was definitely, definitely a Detroit book. Yeah, and I also love. Um, I have. There are certain decades and seventies, especially get get usually get played for a lark if they show up. Like people see it as something laughable when yeah. so much important, serious shit happened. <laughs> During those 10 years. Um, and like in the same way Abbott and the get down, like those, those pieces of media that like respect the time yeah, and, and don't treat it as LOL. Remember what pants we wore? Like, <laughs> no, these were real people. And there was so much social and cultural change happening so much political upheaval. And it's such an important time. And so like, I was already immediately sold the second that they were, I was like, wait, it's a serious book and it takes place when, but like then the execution was just marvelous. Yeah. And the whole mood of Abbott did feel like, um, what, what I believe like a Donald Goins novel mm-hmm. and anybody that knows Donald Goins author from Detroit, the stories were real as hell. And I got that same sort of mood from Abbott. So that's why I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just like, I'm not sure if 
even if that book could have been made five years ago, it would not have been given the push and attention and love five years ago, I think. And I think that that's such a, a sign of the times in such a positive way. Yeah, like, like, like anything, like with comic books, there's always been that sort of geeky stigma, especially in the more marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember here in Detroit, there's a, uh, a comic book store. They have three locations in Michigan called Vaults of Midnight. But they just, uh, they opened one downtown Detroit. And I remember one day there's this whole group of, uh, of black kids in there talking about how like they were comic book fans but like in the hood they didn't talk about it because they you know they didn't want to get made fun of but it's really it's really interesting to me actually because like i was saying this is like something i actually adore talking about which is like the definition of cool and what happens when like it intersects with intersects with blackness right because like there are also large swaths of black community where everywhere, like all the, there's still like a gendered element to it, but like where all the boys read, you know, X-Men, they read the superheroes, they read the Avengers, you know, yeah. uh, particularly, particularly like say the generation uh, of my parents or a little bit younger than that, right. you know, um, or, and I th- it definitely comes in cycles because I think there's always that kind of response and pushback like, oh, my parents thought that was cool, so it's no longer cool. Now it's dorky. <laughs> yeah. But like, just think about like when you think about uh, what was it like one of my favorite documentaries was it uh, Street Wars? It's the graffiti one about the subway. Right. And you've got, you know, some of the fu- fucking pioneers of the art just nerding out over Frazetta. <laughs> you know there's this great there's this great scene where they're on a platform and there's uh a movie poster and it's frazetta art and they're just they, they're just loving it you know <laughs> and how much comics influenced that generation and that art and how in turn those comics like after influencing those those you know like writers then you get how much of our lettering currently is influenced by that graffiti writing and, you know, like that cycle back and forth. Um, but like the definition of cool and how it like pertains to comics, like it's really weird. Cause like for my dad and people growing up, like my dad was a jock, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like um, up until he got injured in college, like he was like, you know, sp- you know, sports scholarship, like sort of like jock. Right. Um, but like comics were always part of his life, you know, uh, and part of his siblings life, you know, in the same way that music was. Um, and then you get, you get other communities where it it might be, oh no, we read comics, but we don't talk about it. Like you talk about it. You know, I feel like it's very much in the same way that like manga right now, it's the exact same thing, you know, most like a large swath of young kids, especially, you know, young black kids, uh, kids of color are, you know, picking up all that shonen manga and they're loving it. And it's, it's standard for it to be loved. 
but then it's also still talked about like it's not cool to love. Yeah. But everybody's reading it. So it's like this weird back and forth thing that happens. Yeah, and that's what those kids were talking about in the uh, in the comic book store. They were like, yo, I read all this stuff, but I was too scared to talk about it. But then I re- realized my man's down the street was re- reading it also. And then my man's on the other street was reading it also. We realized, yeah. oh, shoot, everybody in the hood's reading this stuff. Yeah, like that, like, and I think that that's, it's like, it's this super weird thing. And I think it comes from the fact that there is this outside influence that says, that it's quote unquote nerd stuff and also that nerd stuff is bad, you know? And it's like, oh, we're all kind of nerdy about something, you know? Like, it's just kind of what it is and whether it's whole scale considered nerdy, you know? Um, and I mean, also, I think in the same way, it's this assumption that when you say comics or when you say manga, it only means one genre. Um, so people come at it with the understanding of, I don't understand how all of these people like this one single comic. And you're like, I mean, people do like that comic, but it's actually when I'm talking about loving comics and say a good friend of mine, we're talking about completely different genres that have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> right, right. In regards to like all these pop culture things that are out there and whether it's comics or movies and whatnot, you're seeing a lot of you know, people of color being a part of it. You're seeing the movies that have lead actors that are, you know, people of color. You're seeing, you're seeing movies and everything that are, you know, primarily made by people of color. You know, how does, how do you, how do you feel like the prog- that, that progress has been recently in regards to those nerdy stigmas and maybe even the, just the idea of what blackness is? It's very funny because I think it is very much the same thing of people acting like this was nerd stuff, but then when you've got someone like Jordan Peele doing Twilight Zone, and then everyone is kind of admitting now that they all watch the old series. Or, you know, my dad was kind of a big, I don't want to say closet Trekkie, because the second you talked about Star, Star Trek, like he would tell you everything that had ever happened in a Star Trek. But, like, he just wasn't... He didn't believe in, like, going places, like, conventions. Um, But, like... We've always been there. And every step forward is more evidence that we were always there. You know? um, There's... In pros communities especially, there's this constant... Uh, back and forth where somebody declares a genre is dead. It might be horror. It might be, you know, fantasy with princesses. It might be X, Y, and Z. And then there's always the response of, well, no, it's not dead. You can count on one, like one hand, maybe half a hand, how many books by books or movies by Brown people with these genres have, have, gotten a push you know that it's not the genre it's it's the variance in storytelling um and so i love seeing what we're doing now even when i don't like it even when it's not for me even when like i almost more enjoy like when when we actually get the opportunity and we trip and stumble and it either doesn't quite work or you know it's not for me because that opens the door for another project that might be for me 
or might still not be for me, but might be for that 12 year old who will come up with a project who's just, that's just mind blowing, you know? Um, one of my favorite things to happen in the past few years is this, um, uh, movement in, in, uh, horror prose, uh, and also some in comics too, um, of marginalized people writing Lovecraftian horror, just literally going, doing the thing that Lovecraft would have hated the most beyond anything, <laughs> you know? Uh, and those books are winning awards and getting people talking and getting people interested in Lovecraft, Lovecraftian horror because it can make sense for them now, you know, like, um, just being able to play in these every every new story adds more sand to the sandbox you know and that's that's really fun because then suddenly things i never thought i'd be able to do suddenly i'm inspired with all these ideas because i've seen other people do it um i talked about uh daniel jose older's shape the uh, shadow shaper but also victor laval's um ballad of black tom when um which is just like a very black adaptation of a uh, story uh, of, of Lovecraft's um, and does really amazing things. When I, I sat there and read those books and I ended up like journaling, which I, I don't do. I'm terrible at journaling. <laughs> I can't stand it. But I ended up journaling like for the whole night after each of those books because suddenly it was like they open new doors. If this is what you can do with a genre that was like, like with Ballad of Black Tom, if this is what you can literally do with a genre that specifically is about, no, fuck you, I hate black people and brown people, and you turn it into something amazing and inspiring, like inspiring in a very morbid sort of way, I should put that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like an inspiring, like, yay book. It is very dark. Um, but if that's what you can do with this material, I have so many more ideas now. Because I never thought of that thing because I didn't think that doorway was open, you know? And that's that's what we're doing right now. We're we're seeing the people who will be inspired by Lena Waithe, by uh uh Ava DuVernier and you know, and just seeing what those people are going to do once those doors are opened. I remember uh maybe like a year ago, I interviewed uh uh, Derek Davis. He is mm -hmm. a. Um, he he was the first person to play the Phantom in for the Phantom of the Opera sequel, Love Never Dies. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking with him, he's and I, I just kind of posed the question about being the first uh, black actor to have this role, and he said his purpose of this of being in this role was to show that the Phantom character doesn't need to be a particular race. It can be played by anybody. When it comes to that in comics or whatever, you know, what's your feelings about, you know, the, the balance between those characters that can be played by anyone and then the characters that really need to be represented by a specific type of person? I really love thinking about this. I actually, one of my, uh, favorite conversations was I ended up spending two, three hours with this uh, group of uh, theater nerds. And then we were talking about the implications of race and gender swaps over like famous musicals. Um, like talking about like, 
okay, what if Burr or Hamilton in the Hamilton musical were women or non-binary characters and what that does to the story? Um, I think that there are three ways it can go. There are some characters that genuinely, because of the world built around them, can be played by any race, any marginalization. Um, this kind of comes into like the second one. It's like a, I guess a 1B sort of thing, where though sometimes you have to be aware that those characters may cause additional or different interpretations to their actions. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes that's why you're doing it, you yeah. know? Um, you know, uh, and then other times there are characters that that the swap is makes implications that are disastrous, you know? <laughs> um, like, I guess one of my favorites that I would compare would be um, people that do full race swaps of Othello, where um, where everyone is black and, he, and uh, Othello is white. Um, and you have to think about then what story are you telling there? I mean, theoretically, you are capable of doing whatever you want with that story. But chase, changing that racial dynamic changes every line. Like, changes, even if, like, you... Ignoring, like, the specific race lines, but the dynamic be, between Othello and Iago is different. The difference... The, the difference between having, like, a white Othello with a black Desdemona means something different because the way that literature and the way that your audience is going to interpret a black Desdemona and the lines that she says, is she suddenly going to be taken as more aggressive or less aggressive? Is she going to come off as um, too demanding to certain people because they have, have in their mind uh, this kind of sassy black character or uh, do they see her as something as more of a trophy because she, because uh, Othello is white. Do people see uh, Othello as more or less sympathetic, you know, especially considering what audiences you're talking to? Um, I love doing gender and race swaps, but you have to think about why you do them. You know, um, a story that is inherently about blackness uh, or inherently about toxic white masculinity um, or a story about being, you know, a lesbian if you remove those elements from the casting, then what story are you trying to tell? And are you genuine? Are you genuinely telling a story or are you just hurting people by doing that swap? And kind of extending on that a bit, I, I think through, you know, for a long time, you'd see like on in movies, TV shows or whatnot that are heavily, placed in a black neighborhood where you would have the quote unquote white savior, you know, what's your thoughts about that? Um, I don't think we, it has zero interest to me. Maybe that, I mean, like that's just being really blunt. We have right. a lot of those stories. You are probably not going to tell it differently than anyone else has told it. Um, and it would be a very hard sell for me personally um i'm i'm tired of reading a story in which i know that people who look like me are going to be infantilized um 
And that's what a white savior narrative is for me at this point. And do you feel like, you know, things are going away from that? Do you feel like you're, you're seeing more people of color that are putting those roles to where they're quote unquote, they're getting away from that sort of, like you said, I can't even say it. <laughs> you said the I word, struggled but... with it too. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but infantilized, <laughs> we're uh, kind of going away from that, and you're kind of getting more of an up upliftment of people instead of, you know, sort of a degrading of a group of people. I think it's a two step forward, one step back kind of thing. Uh, I think when you are giving marginalized people the opportunity to tell their stories that we're seeing that progression, we're seeing that movement forward. Um, but I think that there are a lot of, that especially when you go into the the bigger arenas, corporate, Hollywood, et cetera, you are still getting, there is a reason why when you see the stories with white saviors that there almost always is a white team behind it. In the same way that, like, I love, um, uh, one second, movie about astronaut, please. What is, uh, I'm blanking, it's, uh, yes, Hidden Figures. Sorry, yeah. my brain is not working today. <laughs> I genuinely love Hidden Figures. There is a corporate Hollywood reason why they needed to have the scene with the bathroom and have it be led by a white man. And that's what I mean by two steps forward, two steps back. That movie is critically important to me and I know is critically important to so many, you know, young black children, young black women. But I also am like, yeah, um, you still just had to get that mo those moments of white saviorism in there because they, there is a part of Hollywood that can't conceive that their main audience is actually black people and you don't need to write so that, or brown, you know, like brown people, and with this movie specifically, black people. Um, and you don't need, you can just write a, a movie about black people being amazing. And just sometimes your white audience will have to deal with the fact that they were surrounded by white people who weren't good people. And I think that corporate Hollywood in particular is so scared of that, that that's why you still get these white, straight, cis voices telling these stories that should be told by queer brown people and why the problems keep persisting. But on the flip side, we are letting, we are getting more and more marginalized people telling their own stories, either because they're being given the chance, because they, they bring those numbers, or because we are through crowdfunding, through other things, learning uh, learning as a large group how to support these creative endeavors. Um, and the more money they make, the more that corporate Hollywood will have to bow to what actually makes money. I didn't see the this movie, but didn't uh, the movie Green Book kind of suffer from that white, like oh. mainstream sort of thing going on? The Green Book, I wanted, because of the casting, I wanted to be excited about that movie. Green Book does the same thing. I've, I've seen that movie. I've seen that movie 
since the 80s. <laughs> you know, it's the exact same beats. It's the exact same construction. And it does not feel like someone's life because it's not, it's, it's erased so much of the main character's actual lives in order to tell a very safe kind of story that, that has been marketed a thousand times um, and has been marketed to white people. Um, and it doesn't understand that there is a black audience and an audience of color in general that will support stories that actually sound genuine. Right. Like a lot, a lot of these movies are like kind of feel good stories for white people saying, Hey, look, uh, we're doing good things for black folks or something like that. Yeah. They, they, but they don't really care. They, they care about, they care about like guaranteed money, but they don't understand that taking a chance is probably going to be to do better in the long run. Right. Um, and it's, it's, ridiculous that taking a chance means genuinely writing for brown people or for gay people or you know like when there are so many of us you know like there are and there are so many of us there are so many people who are actually genuine allies but to be scared about this small pool of people right. you know it's wild there's been multiple years where uh, review where like data has shown that both black and Hispanic people go to the theater the most and I believe are also more most likely to see a movie multiple times right. and Hollywood is still fighting against that so unfortunate so unfortunate I always like uh, asking this uh, question in my uh, interviews what's the sort of nugget of knowledge you know a lesson from your life or career that anybody listening to this, no matter what avenue of artistry they come from, could sort of project into their own life? Hmm. I'm going to be really weird and technical. Work backwards <laughs> if you're stalling. Um, like, this is actually going to be, like, a technical, like, pen to paper, like, be it artist, be it, like, the art or the um, writing or, or even the editing work backwards if you are stuck and you know your end game i i am the biggest fan of like outlining backwards is a thing i do a lot where mm -hmm. i go i know where it has to start i know where it has to end and i know two things that have to happen at some point in the middle and then just go backwards cool let me list all the things that have to be true of my last scene so for all of those things that have to be true for my last scene, I had to have had these three things happen before for okay. those three things to be true. And you just keep going backwards like that. Um, and doing it in that weird order. If you do it like that and the same is, you know, with, with art, if you're staring at your art because you're like, how do I get this one thing to work? Like look at it from a different angle, look at it, you know, at, at like the bigger picture and then, you know, like kind of zoom in, so to speak, because, or if you're editing and you're like this, I want to give a note for this section and this section isn't popping. What's the issue? Look at the look, not at trying to ex solve the exact thing, but voicing this line isn't working. It's awkward. 
And we're going to work backwards to figure out why it's awkward rather than me trying to give you a solution. Because once the piece is finalized, no one will be able to tell what order you worked in. Not if you do your job. Right. If you are making a mystery, mystery, say you're doing like a murder mystery, no, no one will know that you figured out the way the mystery is solved before you figured out what the mystery was. You know, mm -hmm. right. I could like no one will know if you do your job right, so you can work in a counterintuitive order. Yeah, that makes sense because. Uh... Let's just say that you're just a person who just, you know, likes to almost, you love when you have things down or like to, you know, have, or, you know, have things done. Like just having that last, those little steps here and there can kind of break down the process a little bit and make it a little bit more digestible than always having like this tunnel vision from the, you know, to the end, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, and if you're a person like that, when you write down your to-do list, don't write down, like say for example, don't write down finish issue two. Write down in like four separate chunks, four chunks of pages. So just like write five pages, write five pages, write five pages, write five pages, write three pages or whatever the end is to round off the numbers and check it off like that. You will feel so much better for having finished those five pages and checking off five pages than you ever will for just staring at those finished 22 pages for a week. I say this from personal experience. I do this to myself all the time. If I don't break down the project, it doesn't get done. But the second I sit there and I break it down into scenes or number of pages that are smaller chunks that seem like doable, then suddenly it becomes so breezy. Nice, nice, nice. Sounds great, sounds great. And before we get out of here, I always like to end my interviews with the same question. Who is somebody that's been a part of your life or career that I could realistically interview for this, for this podcast and they would have some good stories or lessons to talk about? Um, okay, I'm really hoping, I looked through and I don't think you've interviewed her yet. And if you have, I guess I'll have to come up with someone else. <laughs> um, you haven't interviewed Emily Pearson yet from The Wilds, have you? I'm actually talking um, to her tomorrow. Oh my gosh. I keep being thwarted. But <laughs> the answer the answer is her because um she is just really enthusiastic and clever, has a great sense of color. Like Yes. It's ridiculous. And just she's the sort of person who you see just improve and just on every page. Just every project she gets just is better and better and better and she's dedicated to becoming better in a really in a way that I really admire um that when she she you know like focuses on developing different styles or figuring out what works for her and what she enjoys doing like that's motivating for me so everybody who re who listens to Emily's piece will have a really good time right yeah we're probably going to talk about uh a bunch of uh, K-pop also. Uh, very, that is that is a big part of uh, Emily's uh, life and process, so that's really important. <laughs> you, you can't discuss Emily and art and, and her her flair for fashion and style in her books right? Uh, 
with without touching on K-pop. <laughs> yeah, it's been great talking with you, and I love that we uh, follow each other on Twitter because you uh, retweet and like a lot of my stuff. I mean, you you have dope stuff on Twitter, so especially the wrestling Basically. stuff. I mean, yes, I will. I <laughs> I keep falling behind and then like marathoning to catch up, but I deeply love wrestling, and uh, it is just so fun. Right? Yeah, like, and a lot of times you can just look on Twitter depending on who you follow and uh, kind of catch up or know what's going on. I try, I try to, but to be honest, like I'm, I'm really shallow about wrestling and I will very <laughs> like, I obviously I love a good match, but I also just, am like, they're my favorite now because I think they're attractive. Oh, so um, <laughs> this also means that I'm current literally right now wearing a Roman Reigns sweatshirt and I have, it's rough. Okay. I love Roman so much. And he's just one of those that, like, a lot of people really love, but then people who really dislike him really dislike him. And I'm like, this is so much. I just, he's pretty. Let me watch him flip his hair. And then, <laughs> and then I'm also, like, a Charlotte Flair fan because, I mean, have you looked at Charlotte Flair? Right. Um, and it's, like, the same thing. Like, people, she, she has done so much and worked so hard but man when people don't like charlotte it's rough right and they're all on twitter <laughs> right i kind of stay away from the uh the internet wrestling community as much as that i can you know it's i i i uh i follow certain people who who like to provide specific information about things that i like you know like i'm big into yeah. japanese wrestling especially the uh, the women's wrestling out there so mm -hmm. I follow the people who, who uh, know how to have access to all the information to be able to translate things for me so I know what's going on with every promotion out there. Yeah, I try my best to, uh, when following wrestling people, to mostly follow people who know my deep passions about, like, my favorites. So, like, they won't pull the... Uh, the minimal amount of trash talking I can get when I, you know, put like hard eyes up next to Charlotte or Roman uh, or the Usos is is great. So I just just let me like who I like. I'm not going to speak negative about anyone unless their name is Rousey. Um, <laughs> <but>. Same. <laughs> um, but you can't, you can't. But also, I'm not going to reply to anybody right. who is talking positively. I'm just going to let you rock. Like right. you do you. I'm over here. Don't respond negatively to me when I'm liking my wrestling. We're all watching grown people beat each other up very dramatically like it's a novella. So let's just let's just do this and all love Kofi together. Right. And <laughs> and, and with wrestling, you can't help but uh, you know, have a little bit of that shallow view like you were talking about with the way the, you know everybody looks, you know. You know, there is people you're just going to have like hard eyes for, you know. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's fun. Like I literally watch wrestling because it's a novella with flying with like people jumping in the air and beating each other up. Right. Like it's everything I could want. It's ex it's ridiculous drama and muscly people and really strong people and hopefully Nia Jax hugging me one day. Um, <laughs> I like I if they're really big, I really like them. That's just like a thing. Um, but yeah, it's, 
It's one of those things that I use to de-stress. So. Oh yeah, it's it's a great, it's great. <laughs> All right, it's been great talking with you. Uh, where can people go online to get more information about what you're up to? Uh, so the best place uh, is usually my Twitter. So where dogs W E R E D A W G Z. Uh, over on Twitter. Um, and then also, I technically do have a website, which I just redid, so it's like readable now uh, <laughs> at dannylore.com. Uh, I try to kind of keep links to what I'm working on there uh, as well as I got to update it for some interviews, but I try to keep some interview stuff there as well. Cool, cool. It's been great talking with you. Uh, I had a blast. And uh, good luck with everything coming up. Cool. Thank you so much. Uh, Please tell Emily when you uh, interview her that I said hello. Uh, and uh, have a great day. All right, you too. So that's my interview with Danny Lore. Links to their work and the Queen of Bad Dreams will be in the show notes for this episode at freshofthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening once again. Goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.